We begin, therefore, with a presentation of the Language Act and Worldmaking Project by Catherine Boyle, Professor of Latin American Cultural Studies and the Director of the Center for Language Acts and Worldmaking at King's College London. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Davida Said, is Catherine Boyle, and I'm the Director of the Center for Language Acts and Worldmaking here at King's College London. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this event, which has been some time in the making, as Reem and David uh, know. So it's really great that it's happening now. A little bit about Language Acts and Worldmaking. Language Acts and Worldmaking is one of the four projects of the Open World Research Initiative, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council here in the UK, whose goal was to have a transformative impact on modern languages research and teaching in the UK at a time of crisis, perceived and real in the discipline. The Open World Research Initiative was developed to have a transformative impact on language learning and teaching in the UK, and that's what we've been working on across six different strands of research uh, since 2016. In language acts and world making, we always thought about the time beyond the funding, which is the time we're in now. How could our research and activism be an impetus for sustained energy and ensuring that the study of languages lies at the heart of the way we engage with others individually, collectively, locally and globally? In posing these questions, we know, as today's event shows, that we are part of a much broader community tackling those precise issues and part of a long genealogy of people working in many different communities around the world. Part of the richness of language acts and world making has been the growth of the community of co-researchers since the project began, enriching our own research and practice. The host of this event is our research strand travelling concepts, of which David is a part. And this strand explores how history constitutes a workshop for questioning how language constructs the world we live in. That's what we understand by world making. In a journey that goes from Brazil to China and through multiple languages, the Strand investigates the ideological work performed by the vocabularies that historically cluster around Iberia, whether embedded in individual words, phrases or extended literary forms. Um, like narrative, lyric, history, concepts such as global, culture, civilization, tolerance, Europe, and the binary East-West are central to the way Iberian history has been imagined both inside and outside the peninsula from the Middle Ages to the present day. So in that context, on behalf of Language Acts and Worldmaking, I'm delighted to welcome you to Ibn Arabi's creative imagination crossing borders to discover the meaning of being human. And you can see how that really ties in with everything we've done in language acts and world making and wants to continue to do with our community of core researchers across the world. And I want to welcome you to this moment of exploring how Ibn Arabi's creative imagination crosses philosophical, poetic, linguistic and artistic borders and how his ideas continue to inspire contemporary poetry, film, art and music. I'm certainly looking forward to hearing and learning a lot in, in this evening's event. So with that, I'm really delighted now to hand over to Richard Twinch, the trustee of the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society. And thank you very much for inviting me to introduce Language Acts at the event. Hello, good evening. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you, David, and um, welcome to everybody. It's wonderful to see so many people coming to attend and join together here. The Ibn Arabi Society was established in 1977 to make better known the works and thought of Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi, particularly amongst scholars, as 45 years ago, there was little known of Ibn Arabi except for individuals and small groups scattered around the world. In the modern era, the early translations were few, mainly French, particularly as the vast corpus of his work remained in manuscript form. Where printed editions were available, many of these were based on inaccurate later copies. The society set about collecting the best available early manuscripts from the libraries of the world, especially Turkey, 
which had gathered these together during the Ottoman period. The arrival of the digital age vastly increased our capacity to do this. And over 1500 have been archived and a catalog made available to scholars around the world. To help this process, the society has run annual symposia since its inception to allow scholars and members of the society to meet and share their work and insight. In 1982, the journal was set up for scholars, both independent and university-based to publish articles, translations, etc. The journal is now peer reviewed. The latest volume is now 69. So there's a large body of work spread over nearly 40 years. In recent translation, in recent years, we've also won three Young Writer Awards and a Commencia Translation Prize this year, both with generous cash prizes. The manuscript archive has resulted in printed critical editions being published based on a selection of the earliest manuscripts. Almost without precedent, many are in Ibn Arab's own hand or are direct copies of originals signed as accurate by the author himself. The critical editions are then made available to scholars for translation into world languages. English was a target language 35 years ago, but since then translations are being made directly into Spanish, Italian, French, modern Turkish, Russian and Swedish, and more recently into Indonesian, Urdu and Bengali. To further establish the society, the organization was reconfigured as a public UK charity in July 2018, with a new emphasis on education. This was also to create a clear structure that further generations can build on. The arrival of COVID-19 and the burgeoning of online platforms has created an explosion of interest in Ibn Arabi. In response, the society has moved symposia online and interlinked with other affiliated Mohidin Ibn Arabi societies, known as MIAS around the world, MIAS Latina for Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian speaking people, MIAS USA and MIAS Asia Pacific, in English, addressing their own time zones. And we have representatives of all these uh, uh, other uh, affiliated groups here with us today. Also here at MIAS UK, we established the MIAS Education Department. This was born at the start of lockdown and as a direct result of the cancellation of the Physical Language Acts event at King's College in March, 2020. Since then, MIAS Education has been running a seminal series of courses under Dr. Rim Ferriani and has also established the IRH, Interdisciplinary Research Hub, as a friendly space to provide students, researchers and lecturers the opportunity of giving presentations on topics of their choice, followed by discussions. If now every society members, including student members, receive the journal as well as discounts to events and courses. We balance the need for keeping clear benefits for members, as well as making our work available for the education of the general public. So again, this, uh, this event has gone out to our members, but it's also been open to the general public. And also we're, we're very pleased to be sharing this with King's College. The joy of being a MIAS member is to participate directly in the process of the universal love to be known as expressed through one of its greatest exponents. In this way, we are also given the opportunity to serve this, not just passively, but through active involvement. And we have today with us, many of the people here are people we've been sharing and doing courses and studying with um, over the last uh, some many years, some just the last year and a half. So um, it's, it's uh, really uh, been a wonderful time this last year and a half. Thank you very much. And over to you, David. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you, Richard, for those wonderful introductions. And now the first presentation of this evening will be delivered by Cecilia Twinch, 
a senior research fellow of the Society in Oxford. She has studied modern and medieval languages at Cambridge University, and besides working as a teacher, translator, and editor, she has lectured on even Arabic and mysticism worldwide since 1990. Her publications include an English translation from the Arabic with Pablo Veneto of Ibn Arabi's Contemplation of the Holy Mysteries, and a new translation of Know Yourself, an explanation of the oneness of being. Cecilia will give an illustrated introduction to some of the main ideas of Ibn Arabi's thought through an overview of his life and works, with particular emphasis on the world of imagination. Cecilia, whenever you are ready. Thank you, David. Um, I'll just share my screen. Uh, oh, in there. A big hello to everyone who's just arrived. So as David said, I'd like to begin my presentation with a short introduction to some of the main ideas in Ibn Arabi's thought and continue with an illustrated overview of his life and works um, with particular emphasis on the imagination. And then this will be followed by this excursion into just a few of the many examples of how his ideas have inspired creative and artistic expression in the contemporary world. Mu'tin ibn Arabi is known in the Muslim world as the Sheikh al-Akbar, the greatest master, because he's acknowledged as one of the most important and influential spiritual teachers in the Islamic tradition, in the Islamic tradition in general, and the mystical or Sufi tradition in particular. As well as being a great teacher, mystic and poet, he is one of the world's great thinkers and has had a huge influence on world thought. Even though he was a practicing Muslim living more than 800 years ago in a very particular context, his fundamental ideas have a universal aspect. They have meaning for every human being, irrespective of their race, religion, belief, opinions, their culture, gender, age, conditioning, circumstances or education. They communicate what it really is to be alive and to be a human being. Ibn Arabi wrote at least 300 books, of which about 100 survive to this day. He is best known for his affirmation of the unity of existence, his explanation of how a single reality is revealed in every level of existence as an outpouring of love, which is the movement of beauty. He emphasizes the necessity of seeing through two eyes, the eye of transcendence in order to perceive what is single, essential, incomparable and abstract, and the eye of immanence in order to see that oneness in all the intricate detail of its manifold forms, representations and likenesses, so that the one can be seen in the many and the many in the one. He also explains that the human being who is made in the image of the divine reality is capable of reintegrating all degrees of that reality in order to reach perfection or completion. This is not just a metaphysical idea, but an exploration of what being human means. As a catalyst for change, Ibn Arabi was also known as the Red Sulphur, since his writing has the ability to transform preconceptions of who we really are, leading beyond the limitations of our personal beliefs to a certainty in the sacred wholeness of life which transcends all boundaries of time and space, but which is compassionately infused into everything that manifests in the world. Geometrically speaking, and this is how Ibn Arabi himself describes it, it is like returning to the dimensionless point at the center of the circle, but without which the circle could not be generated. I would like to tell a story about Ibn Arabi when he was, as he says, a beardless youth, so a young teenager, which would make it about the year 1190. The famous medieval philosopher Averroes, who is known in the Islamic world as Ibn Rushd, had heard the spiritual illuminations which the young Ibn Arabi had received during a period of retreat and wanted to meet him. Ibn Arabi's father, who was a friend of Ibn Rushd, duly sent his son to Cordoba, in order to meet him, and Ibn Arabi recounts, As I entered the house, 
the philosopher rose to greet me with all signs of friendliness and affection and embraced me. And then he said to me, yes. And I in turn said, yes. And he seemed pleased that I'd understood him. But as I became aware of what caused his pleasure, I said, no. At this, Ibn Rush drew back and his face changed colour as he seemed to doubt his thoughts. Then he asked me, what have you discovered as a result of mystical illumination and divine inspiration? Is it the same as what is arrived at by speculative thought? I replied, yes, no. Between the yes and the no, spirits take flight from their matter. Ibn Rush turned pale and started to tremble. He muttered the ritual phrase, there is no power saving God, because he had understood my illusion. This story illustrates the age-old dichotomy between reason and revelation. Notice the hiatus between the yes, no, between the affirmation and the negation. The extraordinary gift of Ibn Arabi is that he's able to transmit what he receives through revelation. Only by bringing what is revealed in the heart across to the intellect and expressing it in intelligible form can revelation be communicated lucidly. Part of Ibn Arabi's genius is, that, is this ability to translate what he knows of the ineffable realm in a rational way. He is like a traveller who has returned from a journey and describes to others what he has seen. His words conjure up images and ideas of amazing places. We have not experienced what he has experienced, but the state which his travels have induced in him is communicated to us and engenders in us a longing to go there too. Ibn Arabi frequently quotes the divine saying, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known. So I created the world in order to be known. And this love to be known imbues the whole of creation. God wants to see his own beauty revealed in the mirror which summarizes the whole of existence. Because as Ibn Arabi says in his book, the Fasus al-Hikam or Ringstones of Wisdom, the vision of a thing by itself is not the same as the vision of itself in another, which serves as a mirror for it. He writes elsewhere, God created Adam in his image, and the human being collects together the whole cosmos. God's knowledge of the universe is none other than his knowledge of himself, since there is nothing in being but he. Inevitably, the universe is in his form. When God made the cosmos manifest as an actual entity, it was his place of revelation, so he saw nothing within it but his own beauty, and he loved the beauty. Thus the image, thus the universe is God's beauty. So he is the beautiful, the lover of beauty, and anyone who loves the universe in this regard has loved it with God's love and has loved nothing but God's beauty. For the beauty of a work of art is not attributed to the work itself, it is attributed only to the artisan. So the beauty of the cosmos is God's beauty. Each human being has the potential to serve as that perfect mirror for reality, free of any additional flaw, colouring or distortion of their own making. According to Ibn Arabi, the human being who is made in the image of the divine is created for perfection and his writings are full of advice on how to realize the true potential which each human being has for integration, wholeness, and completion. Ibn Arabi spent half his life in the West and half in the East. He was born in Murcia in southeastern Spain in 1165 of the Common Era, at a time when Andalusia, the land the Arabs called Al-Andalus, had already been under Muslim rule for over 450 years. It was a land of paradise, according to the poets of the time. O oh, you who live in Al-Andalus, with its waters, its shade, its rivers, its trees, how blessed you are. He was born into a culture where, despite constant skirmishes, Christian, Jews and Muslims had been living side by side in relative harmony for hundreds of years. 
it is often referred to as a period of convivencia or living together with respect for peoples of different religions and beliefs. At the age of seven, he moved with his family to Seville. It soon became the centre of the Almohad Sultan's court and Seville remained his home for the next 27 years. When he was about 15 years old and partying with friends, Ibn Arabi experienced a strong calling to turn to God to find out for what purpose he had been created, and he went into retreat. He tells us that he returned to the spiritual path due to a vision where he found himself under the guidance of Jesus, Moses and Muhammad, the prophets of the three major religions stemming from Abraham. Jesus told him to, protect, to practice renunciation and detachment, and this refers to the spiritual station of the heart, which is empty of all attributes. Moses told him that he would attain the hidden knowledge that is with God, directly, without intermediary. And this is the knowledge which was imparted by Moses to Moses by Hidda, the mysterious ever-living teacher referred to in the Quran as one of our servants. And Muhammad told Ibn Arabi, who was being threatened in the dream, my beloved, hold on to me and you will be safe. This seminal vision hints at the breadth of Ibn Arabi's thought, which extends to the meanings brought by all the prophets of these traditions and brings them into a unified perspective. Like his father, Ibn Arabi served in the Sultan's army and in 1164 at the great mosque, the Mesquita in Cordova, Ibn Arabi observed his earthly lord bowing and humbly prostrating before the divine lord. It then occurred to him to make his ultimate commitment to the spiritual path by immediately leaving the service of the Sultan and his career in the army in order to follow the spiritual path. Ibn Arabi began to study the Quran and the Hadith in earnest and soon came under the instruction of his first spiritual teacher, Al-Urabi. Ibn Arabi recounts in his book translated as the Sufis of Andalusia that Al-Urabi asked him, Are you firmly resolved to follow God's way? To which he replied, The servant may resolve, but it is God who decides the issue. Then the master said to him, if he will shut out the world from you, sever all ties and take the bounteous alone as your companion, he will speak to you without the need for any intermediary. And Ibn Arabi says that he then pursued this course until he had succeeded. It was in connection with this master that Ibn Arabi had the first of his several encounters with Hida, the ever-living teacher who imparts hidden mysteries. During his youth, Ibn Arabi kept company with many spiritual teachers, both in Seville and throughout Andalusia. He went into retreat on several occasions and had countless mystical experiences, visions and revelations. Several of his spiritual teachers were women, including Fatima bint Ibn al-Muthanna of Cordoba, who lived in Seville. And she used to say, of those who come to see me, I admire none more than even Arabi. When asked the reason for this, she said, the rest of you come to me with part of yourselves, leaving the other part of you occupied with your other concerns. While Ibn Arabi is a consolation to me, for he comes to me with all of himself. When he rises up, it is with all of himself. And when he sits, it is with his whole self, leaving nothing of himself elsewhere. That is how it should be on the way. In 1193, Ibn Arabi left the Iberian Peninsula for the first time and sailed across to North Africa in order to visit Sheikh Abdulaziz al-Mahdawi in, in Tunis. Mahdawi was himself a disciple of the great Sheikh Abu Majan, for whom Ibn Arabi had enormous respect and who influenced him deeply. He spent almost a year in Tunis in the company of Mahdawi and other great masters, many of whom were also disciples of Abu Majan. Whilst in Tunis, when he was in his 30th year, Ibn Arabi entered the realm of symbols, which contains God's vast earth or the earth of reality, an intelligible 
spiritual realm of meanings beyond the senses, where everything is alive and speaking, and where the real adoration of God and service to the ultimate reality takes place. He writes, it is the world that is infinite and has no borders where it would reach an end. Ibn Arabi says a great deal about this extraordinary earth of reality and affirms that when the mystic contemplative contemplates that universe, it is himself, his own soul, that he contemplates in it. Ibn Arabi gives the following account. After God had created Adam from clay, some clay was left over, and it was from this clay that God created the palm tree, so that this plant is Adam's sister. After the creation of this palm tree, there still remained some clay, the size of a sesame seed, and it was in this remainder of clay that God laid out an immense earth. Ibn Arabi writes, He arranged in it the throne, or sky without stars, the firmament, the heavens and earths, the worlds underground, all the paradises and hells, so that the whole of our universe is to be found there in that earth in its entirety. And yet the whole of it together is like a ring lost in one of our deserts in comparison with the immensity of that earth. That earth has hidden in it so many marvels and strange things that their number cannot be counted and our intelligence remains dazed by them. This visionary geography is alluded to in the work of Abbas Kiristami, the late award-winning film director and photographer who used to lead film workshops at IBAF, the International Ibn Arabi Film Festival held in Murcia each year, about which I'll say more later. Abbas Kiristami had a particular connection with trees. In three of his films, he uses an image of a snaking path leading to a solitary tree at the top of a hill. And he quoted Ibn Arabi as an inspiration when he said that the tree is the sister of man, referring to this story of the palm tree as Adam's sister and of the hidden portion of clay, the size of a tiny sesame seed that contains the vast treasure house of images, the earth of reality, which provides all that the imagination sees with the inward eye. For this vast earth, Ibn Arabi tells us, has been laid out in what is referred to as the barzak or isthmus, the interworld or link which both joins and separates two modes of reality as day separates from night, forming an intermediate realm between the invisible and visible worlds, between spirit and body. It is the placeless space containing both the temporal and the eternal, where spirits become embodied and bodies become spiritualized, as in dreams. Ibn Arabi often identifies the Barzakh with the world of the imagination, knowledge of which he likens to the jewel at the center of a necklace to which the senses ascend and meanings descend, while it never leaves its place. However, the imagination is described as having different levels, so that the power of the imagination holds sway over three main domains. At a cosmic level, the entire creation is imagination. At an intermediate level, imagination is the world between the spiritual world and the physical world. It has an objective, independent reality. And at a microcosmic level, imagination is a faculty of the human mind. This kind of imagination is dependent on the human subject. It is also dependent on the images that exist in the world and in the intermediate independent world of imagination. Ibn Arabi writes, the world is imagination, yet in reality, it is real. Whoever understands this holds the secrets of the way. This is an extremely important thread running throughout Ibn Arabi's thought, since he describes the world as the exteriorization of a single hidden reality, so that all that we see as creation is in fact a divine self-revelation, which is constantly renewed in different forms at every moment without ever being repeated. He writes, the imagination has power over every aspect and state, the sensory and the intelligible, the senses and the rational faculties, forms and meanings, the temporal and the eternal, 
the impossible, the possible and the necessary. Imagination therefore holds immense sway over everything, irrespective of whether it is true or false. In fact, Ibn Arabi maintains that all imagination is true. Although human imagination may entail false conjecture and fantasy, it is not the imagination itself that is corrupt, but the distortion caused by the understanding and judgment of the person on whom it depends. One aspect of imagination's extraordinary power is that while it is impossible for sense perception or the rational faculty to bring together opposites, it is not impossible for the imagination. Like a mirror image, something appearing in the imaginal world is both the same as and different to the two sides that define it. It is both sensible and intelligible, yet it is neither sensible nor intelligible, just as a mirror image is both the same as the object reflected and yet different from it. Or an image of your friend in a dream is both your friend and not really your friend, but only an image of them. We are reminded of the many writers who have upheld the place of imagination and the illusory nature of the world, as in, for example, Calderón de la Barca's play, Life is a Dream, La Vida es Sueño. ¿Qué es la vida? Un frenesí. ¿Qué es la vida? Una ilusión, una sombra, una ficción. El mayor bien es pequeño. Que toda la vida es sueño, y los sueños, sueños son. What is life? A frenzy. What is life? An illusion, a shadow play, a fiction. The greatest good is small, since all of life is but a dream, and even dreams themselves are dreams. Most people are only aware of this interworld when they are asleep and dreaming. However, the point is to wake up from this dream and perceive the reality. The images and signs can help us to do this if we're able to pass beyond them and cross over into the world of the real. Ibn Arabi frequently quotes the Quranic verse, we shall show them our signs on the horizons and in themselves until they see that it is the real. So we need to pierce the veiling screen by means of symbols which transport us to deeper meanings and explore the depths of the self to the reality behind the veil. Ibn Arabi says that once he entered this realm, he never again left it. This does not mean that he inhabited a world of sleep. On the contrary, he had woken up into the earth of reality. For the next few years, Ibn Arabi continued traveling in Spain and North Africa, spending much of his time in Fez, where he had many spiritual experiences, including his entry into the Bode of Light. He writes, I myself attained to this station in the year 1196 in Fez during the afternoon prayer. I was leading a group of people in prayer in the Al-Azhar Mosque, which is in the district of Ain al when I saw it as a light, which was almost more visible than what was in front of me, except that I had lost all sense of behind or in front. I had no sense of direction, as if I had become completely spherical. Any sense of direction I might have had was simply hypothetical, not what I actually experienced. Ibn Arabi was by now becoming well-known as a spiritual teacher in Fez, and he still revered there to this day. And it was in Fez the following year that he was taken on his spiritual ascension, which was similar to the Prophet Muhammad's night journey, except that the Prophet went in his body and travelled on the Barak, while Ibn Arabi's journey was purely spiritual as a vision of the heart. At the beginning of this journey, Ibn Arabi first meets the mysterious youth whom he again meets in Mecca. The youth tells him, you yourself are the cloud veiling your own sun. So recognize the essential reality of your being. Ibn Arabi writes about his spiritual ascension in several of his books. And in one account, he writes, I was enveloped by the divine lights until all of me became light. I received the meaning of all the divine names. 
and I saw that they all referred to a single named and to a unique essence. This named was the object of my contemplation, and this essence my very being. I had only journeyed in myself, and it was to myself that I had been guided. From that, I knew that I was a pure servant without the least trace of sovereignty. In 1198, Ibn Arabi returned to Andalusia and spent two years traveling around saying goodbye to his family and teachers before finally leaving Andalusia to journey to the east. It was while he was back in Murcia, the place of his birth, that God inspired him inwardly and said, tell my servants what you've seen of my generosity. Why do my servants despair of my compassion when my compassion embraces everything? In 1200, he left Andalusia definitively for his long pilgrimage east. On his way to Marrakesh, he entered the highest station a saint can enter, the station of closeness. During his onward journey, Ibn Arabi visited the tomb of Abu Majan, and his route then took him to Bougia in Tunisia, where he had a vision that he was married to all the stars in heaven, being united to each one with great spiritual joy. After I had become joined with the stars, he says, I was given the letters of the alphabet in spiritual marriage. The science of letters in Islamic cosmology is fundamental to understanding the significance of number. For Ibn Arabi, there is a direct analogy between the breath of the all-compassionate through which the world becomes manifest and the human breath by means of which the 28 letters of the Arabic alphabet become articulated. As God speaks the divine word be to each thing that he wishes to manifest, he has compassion on what each thing is in itself and it becomes according to how it is. We therefore see a connection between that which is heard and manifests as sound and that which is seen, between the oral and the visual. After spending more time in Tunis, Ibn Arabi finally left the Islamic West and continued his pilgrimage towards Mecca. It is significant that on the way, he visited the tomb of Abraham in Hebron and the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem before passing through Medina, the birthplace of the prophet Muhammad, on his way to the Kaaba, finally arriving in Mecca in 1202 in time to perform the pilgrimage rites. Soon after he arrived in Mecca, while circumambulating the Kaaba, Ibn Arabi again met the mysterious youth whom he met at the beginning of his night journey and whom he describes as being knowledge, knower and known. Although the youth is silent, he speaks through signs. The spiritual openings which were communicated to Ibn Arabi by means of this youth, he set down in writing over many years in his monumental 37-volume work, Al-Futahat al-Makkiyah, The Revelations of Mecca. And this is a book which explains the interior meanings of the Quran and covers all the spiritual sciences of the time. In the same year of his arrival in Mecca, Ibn Arabi met the beautiful Nidham, daughter of the Imam of the Sanctuary of Abraham. She was renowned for her purity, grace and intelligence, and became the inspiration for his book of spiritual love poetry of longing for the divine beloved, entitled Tajiman al-Ashwak, Interpreter of Ardent Desires, which he eventually set down in writing much later in 1214. And I'd like to quote just a few lines of a poem from this collection, and we shall hear the full poem recited later. How amazing, a meadow amidst flames. My heart is able to accept every form, a grazing land for gazelles, a cloister for monks, a house for idols, the Kaaba compassed round, the tablets of the Torah and the book of the Quran. I follow the religion of love. Wherever love's camels turn their face, that is my religion and my faith. These lines by Ibn Arabi are probably those most often quoted and set to music in the Western world. 
because they are seen to epitomize the all-inclusive nature of Ibn Arabi's vision and the power of love, which manifests in every image of devotion and transcends boundaries and division. In 1204, Ibn Arabi met Sajidin Ikonavi's father, Masjidin Ishaq Karumi, whom he, whom he accompanied on his journey via Iraq to Anatolia. And later, after the death of his friend Majuddin, Ibn Arabi is said to have married his widow, and he brought up Sadruddin as his son, taking great care of his education. And Sadruddin was later highly instrumental in the dissemination of Ibn Arabi's teachings to the Persian world as they spread east to India, the Malay world, and eventually as far as China. The great friendship and mutual respect between Sadruddin and the celebrated poet Jalaluddin Rumi also provides a link between these two strands of Sufism. For although Ibn Arabi has been hailed as a pinnacle of the way of knowledge and Rumi as that of love, as the Ibn Arabi scholar Henri Corbin has pointed out, both are inspired by the same theophanic sentiment, the same nostalgia for beauty and the same revelation of love. Ibn Arabi continued to travel extensively in Anatolia, Arabia, Mesopotamia and Syria, writing prolifically and teaching widely. He settled in Damascus in 1223 and in 1229 he had a vision where he was handed the book of the Fasus al-Hikam, the ringstones of wisdom by the prophet Muhammad and he was told, take it and bring it out to the people, they will benefit from it. The book concerns the wisdom and inner meanings of 27 prophets from Adam to Muhammad. From it, we see that for Ibn Arabi, the religion of God is one. It is a single truth unfolding throughout history according to the demands of time and place and according to the receptivity of the people. All the prophets who have been sent to call people to this single truth have invited them in a way that is appropriate to their receptivity, and all of them have affirmed that there is only one God, one being, and it is this one being which reveals itself in what we call the world and in each human being according to their ability to receive. And at the end of the chapter on Muhammad in the Fasus, Ibn Arabi writes, If the believer understood the sense of Junaid saying, the colour of water is the colour of its container, they would accept the validity of all beliefs and recognize God in every form and every belief. The fact is that they do not have knowledge, but rely only on opinion of which the divine word speaks. I am present in how my servant thinks of me, which means I manifest myself to my adorer only in the forms of their belief, in, a, in an unlimited way if they wish, or in a limited way if they wish. And in 1237, Ibn Arabi completed his immense work of poetry, the Diwan. And Ibn Arabi remained based in Damascus until he died in 1240. His tomb on Mount Qasyun is much revered to this day. Now, we see here an etching of Mount Qasyun by Simon Fatal, whose solo exhibition, Finding a Way, is currently showing at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. Simon's work is inspired by Ibn Arabi and expresses a spiritual and physical metamorphosis. In a recent interview for Bashara magazine with Simon Fital and the Ibn Arabi scholar Michael Sells, whose recent translations of Ibn Arabi's poetry titled Bewildered was published by Simon, the artist explains, In the case of Ibn Arabi, he translates from what he knows, but he also indicates. He cannot express the ineffable, but he indicates what he wants to say, and we can participate in his experience. He's very much in line with what it says in the Quran, that everything is in the text. So if people can see 10 different meanings in a line, then those 10 meanings are all valid. Simon continues, not only is Ibn Arabi a great poet, a great thinker, but he also teaches us how to think. This is something we need very much these days, because people are more and more attached to following other people. And he gives us a method to start thinking for ourselves, to open up our mind. He wrote so many books, and yet he says, I can only give you this much today. I have not yet said what I really wanted to say. 
So he makes us know that there are so many things that we do not know, and he creates in us the desire to find them. Etel Adnan is another internationally acclaimed artist whose work is inspired by Ibn Arabi and whose solo exhibition, Light New Measure, is currently showing at the Guggenheim in New York. Ethel is not only a visual artist producing painting, film, ceramic art and tapestry, but a celebrated poet, journalist, novelist and playwright. To quote Michelle Lamy in Wallpaper magazine, she has never had an exclusive relationship with any single discipline, place, language or tradition, but her nomadic existence and fluid practice has only cemented her position as an artist of the world. Etel Adnan maintains in another article in Bashara magazine that a writer like Ibn Arabi does not bring knowledge in a hard shell way. He is a practice. We read him and it lights our imagination. To read Ibn Arabi is to receive or create a spiritual event. With every reading, he invites us to approach what he calls God and he brings us back to the self. Etel continues... I feel that his thought is very close as the procedure of the mind to oriental music, the music of Ali Akbar Khan or Arabic classical music, which is based on theme and variation. There is a basic theme in Ibn Arabi with infinite little variations. He is like a man who turns around a point, a pole, to which he constantly returns, and this pole he calls God. Or you could say that he's like somebody that a wave brings to the shore, and then the same wave takes him back and brings him in again, and so on. The wave keeps rolling, and every rolling is a new experience of what is maybe the same thing. And this motif, motif of the ocean is illustrated in a video installation by the American artist Bill Viola, which we happened across in the Church of San Gallo at the Venice Biennale in 2007 where it was exhibited on three plasma screens above the three altars and is now permanently installed in the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. The installation is entitled Ocean Without a Shore, after a line by Ibn Arabi, The self is an ocean without a shore. Gazing upon it has no beginning or end in this world and the next. In this video installation, Bill Viola explores the threshold between worlds, which he calls the meeting place of the essential and the material, and which he explains in the following way. The video sequence describes the human form as it gradually coalesces within a dark field and slowly comes into view, moving from obscurity into the light. As the figure approaches, it becomes more solid and tangible until it breaks through an invisible threshold and passes into the physical world. The crossing of the threshold is an intense moment of infinite feeling and acute physical awareness, poised at that juncture for a brief instant. All beings can touch their true nature, equal parts, material and essence. However, once incarnate, these beings must eventually turn away from mortal existence and return to the emptiness from where they came. In 2013, Bill Viola was awarded the Mias Latina Barzak Prize. The Mias Latina is the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society for Spanish, Portuguese and Italian speakers, which is based in Murcia, Ibn Arabi's birthplace, and awards an annual Barzak Prize to one of the many creative artists, writers, musicians, filmmakers, architects, choreographers and so on, who have been inspired explicitly or implicitly by Ibn Arabi's ideas. And this arose because in 2010, the Iranian filmmaker Majid Majidi won the Ibn Arabi Cinema Award at IBAH, the International Ibn Arabi Film Festival. He had suggested there might be a symposium alongside to introduce Ibn Arabi's ideas to the attendees at the festival. And in an interview with Pablo Benito, president of Mias Latina, Majid Majidi explained, I think that great men like Ibn Arabi strive to re-establish the link that unites the human being with the sense of their own creation, knowing where we come from, what we've been created for, what is basically the mission of humanity, and where our dignity lies, and this could solve many of the current problems. I believe that the human has an essential quality. What I have perceived in the thought of Ibn Arabi is that constant endeavour to awaken in some way the primordial nature of the human being so that they can return to their origin, 
to their essential being. But perhaps the language of Ibn Arabi is not within reach of everyone's understanding. And that is why my undertaking is to visually express in some way the message of Ibn Arabi in a language more immediately accessible to the people of today. Another winner of the Ibn Arabi Barzak Prize is the Tunisian filmmaker, painter, calligrapher, sculptor and writer Nasser Khimir, who's described as building bridges between the shores of North and South, East and West. A festival of his work has been showing in Geneva throughout this month of October. His film about Ibn Arabi, Looking for Muhyiddin, part documentary, part drama, has a dreamlike quality where we are shown a physical world that is full of signs and symbols in the same way that dreams are. The main character in his inner and outer quest travels between Oxford, Granada, Seville, Murcia and Cordova to Istanbul, Konya, New York and Sanaa. Tunis and Damascus, and along the way he meets friends of Ibn Arabi who each speak of the master in their own language, Arabic, Spanish, English, French, Italian and Turkish, demonstrating how Ibn Arabi's concepts and visionary ideas have travelled across borders. Finally, a tribute has again been paid to Ibn Arabi's work by another creative artist who has been inspired by him. The actress Juliette Binoche co-created the experimental dance production Inai with the renowned choreographer Akram Khan. In this theatrical dance performance with stage design by Anish Kapoor and music by Philip Shepard toured the world after premiering at London's National Theatre in 2008. It explored the different forms of love and quoted the theophany of perfection from Ibn Arabi's Kitab al-Tajaliyat, or Book of Self-Revelations, as a major source. In March 2011, Juliette Binoche also opened the Printemps des Poètes Poetry Festival in Paris with the performance of a poem accompanied by the Spanish composer and cellist Matthew Salio. And she says, poetry is a language of the invisible, a feeling that is expressed with the concentrated, the less, the dense. It withdraws in order to attract. It is an open heart operation where the word takes shape. Poetry can transport me, transform me, but I'd say even more. It makes me recognise myself, and that's happiness. The poem she chose was again Ibn Arabi's Theophany of Perfection, in the French translation by Osman Yahya and Henri Corbin, later translated into English by Ralph Mannheim. And I shall now read Ibn Arabi's poem, The Theophany of Perfection, and this will be followed by the original Arabic recited by Wafa al-Turk, who is a member of the Mias education team. Listen, O oh dearly beloved. I am the reality of the world, the centre and the circumference. I am the parts and the whole. I am the will established between heaven and earth. I have created perception in you only in order to be the object of my perception. If you perceive me, you perceive yourself, but you cannot perceive me through yourself. It is through my eyes that you see me and see yourself. Through your eyes, you cannot see me. Dearly beloved, I have called you so often and you have not heard me. I've shown myself to you so often and you have not seen me. I have made myself fragrant so often and you have not smelled me. Savorous food and you have not tasted me. Why can you not reach me through the object you touch? or breathe me through sweet perfumes. Why do you not see me? Why do you not hear me? Why, why, why? For you, my delights surpass all other delights, and the pleasure I procure you surpasses all other pleasures. For you, I am preferable to all other good things. I am beauty, I am grace. Love me, love me alone. Love yourself in me, in me alone. Attach yourself to me. No one is more inward than I. Others love you for their own sakes. 
I love you for yourself, and you, you flee from me. Dearly beloved, you cannot treat me fairly, for if you approach me, it is because I have approached you. I am nearer to you than yourself, than your soul, than your breath. Who among creatures would treat you as I do? I am jealous of you, over you. I want you to belong to no other, not even to yourself. Be mine, be for me as you are in me, though you are not even aware of it. Dearly beloved, let us go toward union, and if we find the road that leads to separation, let separation savour separation. Let us go hand in hand, let us enter the presence of truth, let it be our judge and imprint its seal upon our union forever. Thank you, and I shall now pass over to Wafa. Thank you, Cecilia. Tajalli al-Kamal. Isma' ya habibi. Anta al-'ayna al-maqsud min al-kawni. Anta nuqtatu al-da'irati wa muhitaha. Anta murakkibuha wa basitaha. Anta al-amru al-munazzal bayna al-sama' wal-ard. ما خلقت لك الإدراكات إلا لتدركني بها فإذا أدركتني أدركت نفسك لا تطمع أن تدركني بإدراك نفسك بعيني تراني ونفسك لا بعين نفسك تراني حبيبي كم أناديك فلا تسمع كم أتراء لك فلا تبصر كم أندرج لك في الروائح فلا تشم وفي الطعوم فلا تطعم لي ذوقا ما لك لا تلمسني في الملموسات ما لك لا تدركني في المشمومات ما لك لا تبصرني ما لك لا تسمعني ما لك ما لك ما لك أنا ألذ لك من كل ملذوذ أنا أشهى لك من كل مشتهى أنا أحسن لك من كل حسن أنا الجميل أنا المليح حبني حبني لا تحب غيري اعشقني هم في لا تهم في سواي ضمني قبلني ما تجد وصولا مثلي كل يريدك له وأنا أريدك لك وأنت تنفر مني يا حبيبي ما تنصفني إن تقربت إلي تقربت إليك أضعاف ما تقربت به إلي أنا أقرب إليك من نفسك ونفسك من يفعل معك ذلك غيري من المخلوقين حبيبي أغار عليك منك لا أحب أن أراك عند الغير ولا عندك كن عندي بي عندك كما أنت عندي وأنت لا تشعر حبيبي الوصالة الوصالة لو وجدنا إلى الفراق سبيلا لأذقنا الفراق طعم الفراق حبيبي تعال يدي ويدك تدخل على الحق تعال ليحكم بيننا حكم الأبدي